This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora koutou, no mai hare mai. Welcome to It's Getting Hot in Here, where we chat with experts to learn about climate change here in Ototahi. I'm Molly. And I'm Emily. Join us as we go on a journey to find explanations, solutions, and hope for the future. Welcome to It's Getting Hot in Here, Helen. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I recently met Helen. We were actually at an Age Friendlies conference, and Helen introduced herself to me as someone who researches the technology around travel. Helen, would you like to introduce yourself a bit more than that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm focused on the, the social and cultural issues around those technologies associated with travel. So my PhD focused on all the sort of social and cultural things around five different modes of transport. So walking, cycling, driving, bus use and motorcycling. And since then, I just sort of fell into research looking at how our travel practices and and our travel technologies might change over time and how that might integrate with changes in society. So I've looked at some stuff with driverless cars and particularly the value of driverless cars in an ageing society. I've looked at some stuff with e-scooters and at the moment I've got a job working for a a Centre for Sustainable Tourism Research at Lincoln University and I'm focusing there on looking at the use of electric vehicles in tourism. And I should also mention that I'm on the board of ITSNZ, which is Intelligent Transport Systems New Zealand. So that connects me in with a whole bunch of transport technology stuff. So that's really interesting that you study like the social and cultural aspects of those technologies. How does that play a role in these decisions that we see like the government making around trying to electrify the fleet of cars in the country? How do those social and cultural values play into those decisions? Well, I think there's a a couple of different ways of looking at this. And one is I think we we need to do this a little bit more, is look at the social and cultural aspects of decision making. Because there is a tendency, and, and this isn't a criticism of any of the government ministries, they are increasingly responding to these ideas, there is a tendency, I think, to to think that we can that we're going to replace one technology with a newer technology, and that nothing else in society is going to change. So it's like imagining that aliens were going to come down to our planet one night, and overnight they were going to replace all of our human-driven cars with automated vehicles, and we would continue living our lives exactly the same way as we do now. Nothing else would change. But that's not really how society works, because how we get around influences how we live our lives. It influences everything we do. The way that we get around influences where we can live and work, where we can socialise, the kinds of people we meet. I mean, I would encourage you to think now about the friends and the family that you've got and how many of those you would have if we lived in a society where we walked everywhere. I mean, certainly, you know, I wouldn't have ever, probably have ever met the partner who I've now been living with for 20 years. And both of our lives would therefore have turned out very differently. So how we get around influences pretty much everything about how our society works. And once you start to look into those kinds of things, then you start to see a different aspect, I think, to policy making. So the Ministry of Transport is currently working on a, a long-term insights briefing about the future of driverless cars or automated vehicles. 
in New Zealand. And one of the things I've been talking with them about and encouraging them to do is think about how driverless cars actually change the way we live and get around, as well as the pure technology aspects of that. Excellent. I'm really keen to hear more about how EVs might change the way that we travel for our holidays in the future. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic, and it's one that hasn't hasn't had a lot of research done on it internationally. And I think there are two reasons probably that it hasn't had a lot of research internationally. One is probably that there's a tendency to think that at the moment electric vehicles aren't really suitable for holiday travel. They're not perfect. They're not suitable for every kind of holiday, but they're getting there. And, and we probably are going to see, we are seeing some use of electric vehicles in holidays, and we're going to see more of that over time. So we do need to explore that. The other reason I think that we don't see a lot of research around electric vehicles in holiday travel is that people assume that we're going to replace current cars with electric cars and nothing's going to change. And again, I think that's it's this same idea. And there is some emerging evidence that things are potentially going to change. One of the most striking ways, perhaps, that they might change is that there's some emerging evidence that when people drive electric vehicles, they drive them differently to the way that they drive petrol cars. Have you ever driven an electric vehicle? I have, yeah. Yeah. What did you think? Was it different? Yeah, it was different. And I can relate to that sense of pioneering as well Mm -hmm. that I've seen you talk about and just the novelty and excitement and that like angst of how much range do I have, even though it's just had a full charge and probably has at least 400 kilometres, but it's that like constant looking of like, how much battery have I got? Where's my nearest fill up? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's so there's a couple of things going on in that, you know, with with how the vehicles are to drive. Electric vehicles generally, they're smoother, they're quieter, they're less smelly and they often accelerate a lot faster and they hold the road better than than combustion cars as a general rule so better than petrol or diesel cars and that has some influences on on how people drive because there is that slight anxiety for for some people around how far they can go people tend to drive quite conservatively to preserve their their battery if you drive slowly and you avoid hard acceleration your battery lasts longer so people drive slowly and conservatively but their vehicles can also absolutely kick butt if they press the accelerator. And a lot of people like to take advantage of that on occasion. It makes things like overtaking easier. So we've got what I think is some emerging evidence that the way people drive is changing for for electric vehicle drivers. They often drive generally more slowly and conservatively, but occasionally they stamp that pedal and see what happens. And I'm not sure yet what that's actually going to mean for holiday road tolls. I don't think we have a lot of evidence about how that's, how that's going to, to change things. But we might see some changing norms around those different kinds of driving styles. And I think that's interesting. The pioneering thing is, is also interesting. And this is an idea that a lot of people feel that they're doing something quite new, something different, pushing the edges a bit on, on the frontier of technology. And that's, for many people, that's quite an exciting place to be. It's probably lessened a bit in in strength as electric vehicles have become more common on the roads. But a lot of electric vehicle drivers will still say that they they feel a a bit like pioneers and it's quite an exciting feeling to have. One of the things I like that you talked about was slow driving as well. So 
although a disadvantage might be that electric vehicles have less range, it can also be a positive in the sense that it encourages people to stop at destinations or places along the way. Would you like to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I think this is another really interesting thing that came out of some of the research that I've been doing, is that often people who drive electric vehicles do stop more often, and they stop for longer when they do stop. So where somebody who is driving an ICE, an internal combustion engine vehicle, might stop to fill up with petrol, somebody who's driving an EV might stop for 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour. And so they they often find things to do with that 20 minutes, half hour. You know, there's often stopping for coffee or for food or going for a walk, those kinds of things. And there's some sense that people get to explore parts of New Zealand, particularly small towns, that they wouldn't have otherwise explored. There is an element of that meaning that electric vehicles at the moment are most suitable for people who have the time to slow down and to travel more slowly. Particularly, we get comments from retired people saying, well, the fact that I'm retired, that I don't have time pressure, means that I can travel more slowly. That's interesting, but I think possibly more interesting is we had a couple of comments from younger people, particularly people in their 20s, saying that driving an electric vehicle forced them to slow down, and they really liked that about it. They were saying things like, well, when I travel in a petrol car, I just drive straight through to get there. And I like that the electric vehicle forces me to slow down and to stop and to explore. And I find that interesting because, of course, it's entirely possible when you're driving a petrol vehicle to decide to stop and have a look around and have a coffee and have a snack and go for a walk and whatever. But those people don't. They say that they don't. When they're driving a petrol car, they drive straight through. And when they're driving an electric vehicle, they're a bit more mindful about where they are and what they're doing. So in a sense, it's possible that electric vehicles are forcing them to to reevaluate what they value in travel and to think really about where they want to stop and, and what kinds of things they want to do. And I think that's interesting in the context of the future because it may mean that when more people travel by electric vehicle, they do take those stops more into account when they're traveling. We don't know yet how that's going to pan out and as vehicles with, with bigger batteries, with longer range, with higher charging speeds become available, it might not actually make a difference, but it's possible that it might actually change the way people engage with the surroundings that they're travelling through. Yeah, that's fascinating that that technology and the infrastructure of those charging stations really determine the behaviour of the people driving them. I'm wondering if, because people feel better about driving these cars, is there a concern that they would be driving more? Oh, yes, <laughs> there very much is. Absolutely. I mean, international literature has shown that, that people who get electric vehicles, um, and we actually had a master's student who looked into this recently here in New Zealand as well, and his, his findings were similar to those in international literature, that when people get electric vehicles, they drive more. And I think there are probably three reasons for that. One is that you change the allocation of costs of travelling. So an electric vehicle costs more money up front, but is cheaper to drive. So once you've invested in it, it makes sense to drive it more, to get, to get your money's worth. Another thing is that driving electric vehicles is more fun. It just objectively is more fun. I mean, that's not entirely true. So it is all subjective. But a lot of people report that driving electric vehicles is more fun. They feel nicer to drive. So when driving is more fun, you do more of it. When you're on holiday, for example, if it's a chore 
to go somewhere else, you're more likely to spend more nights in the same place, for example. If it's really easy and really fun to drive, you might do it more. And the third thing, of course, is the environmental guilt. Once you remove environmental guilt from driving, it's much more tempting to drive, and particularly for those short trips that, you know, people who have quite strong environmental values might walk to a dairy or ride a bike to a dairy. Once they feel like their car isn't damaging, they're much more likely to take their car. There are those three reasons why people might drive more. And I do have considerable concerns about that because although electric vehicles are better in terms of climate change emissions and climate sustainability, they do have substantial drawbacks in in other ways. Can you briefly talk about those drawbacks? Yeah, sure. I mean, all vehicle travel has a bunch of drawbacks. So those include things like congestion. It includes paving huge amounts of particularly our urban areas are paved particularly to allow for vehicles to allow for parking spaces for roads for driveways for for all of these things we've got a huge amount of tarmac and concrete and, and those kinds of materials and let's not overlook the carbon emissions produced when creating that tarmac as well absolutely absolutely so you've got the life cycle of that tarmac too And even just the fact of covering the ground with those surfaces means that water doesn't seep in as well, so it reduces things like soil biodiversity and increases risks like flash flooding. Now, electric vehicles don't do anything to prevent us tarmacking or or paving areas, so they contribute to those environmental effects. And the more we drive, of course, the more paving we'll have. We also have issues around particulate matter in the local environment. So local air pollution a substantial amount of that from vehicle traffic, is made up from things like road wear, brake wear and tyre wear, so the dust from those kind of things. One study, I think, showed that 85 to 90% of PM 2.5, so particulate matter that's of a particular diameter, and of PM 10, actually comes from road brake and tyre wear. And, of course, electric vehicles do have road brake and tyre wear, and they are often heavier than combustion cars, so they can have more of that than combustion cars do. So in that sense, they might not be good for, for local air quality. And then, of course, we have all the, all the social implications of vehicle travel, including things like difficulties with access. People who can't drive a vehicle, for whatever reason, the more vehicle travel we have, the less easy it is to access things like shops and hospitals and medical centres and, and social opportunities without a car. And that has some pretty substantial implications for people who can't drive. So I think, you know, when we take all of these things together, we can see that electric vehicles are, are on balance good in a climate sense, but they're not entirely unproblematic. And we, we need to not see them as a, as a magic bullet for solving all our transport woes, because they are not that. And we're not overlooking the cost of an EV currently either, which is substantially more than a traditional vehicle. It is, and that's particularly problematic for people on low incomes. And I think what we need, in a policy sense, to really take account of is that as we shift towards electric vehicles, we are loading people with lower incomes with what are, over the long run, more expensive vehicles to run. And also, at the moment, electric vehicle drivers don't pay any version of kind of fuel tax or or whatever, or road user charges. 
so if the if the people with the higher incomes are using the electric vehicles and not paying those taxes, we're loading those taxes on people with lower incomes. I mean, I think you know the, the government is aware of this and they are working on on ways to solve this issue, but at the moment we are essentially taxing the poor, and that's problematic. Mm. So you've talked about that EVs aren't the silver bullet. In terms of sustainable travel and going on holidays, what might be some other sustainable methods of going on holiday that isn't an electric vehicle? I think fundamentally the problem that we have here is that travelling long distances is problematic. It's a difficult thing to say and it's a difficult thing for a lot of people to hear, but we don't have a way of mass tourism over long distances that isn't problematic. So I think in the long run, if we're serious about sustainable holiday making, we probably do need to think more about holiday making closer to home, about being more aware of the opportunities near to home and, and taking advantage of those. And when we tr- do travel longer distances, it's about making longer trips for longer periods of time and doing more while we're there so that, again, we, we make the most of those long-distance transits And then we stay in an area for longer when we're there. And that might mean that we take overseas holidays less often, but we're able to bunch our annual leave together and take longer holidays when we go away. And this does feed into some of the discussions about the kinds of tourists that we want in New Zealand. There's often a bit of a debate, I think, about whether we want the wealthy tourists who fly in for a few days, spend a lot of money and leave, or whether we want the backpackers, who are often the target of a bit of angst. Uh, They're often much maligned, but they do tend to come in for longer periods of time. They spend proportionally much more time in New Zealand for the amount of time they spend, for example, on air travel. And when they do spend money, there is research that suggests that they spend more money on things that are relevant to the New Zealand economy. So rather than flying in for a short period of time and, you know, drinking Australian wine and eating Japanese beef and then leaving again, our backpackers are more likely to shop in Foursquare and buy locally grown produce. And so more of that money may find its way into our economy. So I think we need to have a serious discussion about what we want to do when we're on holiday, but also who we want to invite into New Zealand, who we want to welcome and how we want to encourage them to behave when they're here. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially as maybe we have that choice now to think about who we want to be encouraging to come in when the borders are open. Yeah, and I think there has been quite a lot of discussion about that. And I think in New Zealand and globally, a lot of places that have previously been tourism destinations have been saying, actually, you know, as locals, maybe maybe we want to make some different choices about how we manage tourism. And of course, there are two sides to that, because there are a lot of people who work in the tourism industry who've had a very, very hard time over the last two years. And, And we need to acknowledge that and we need to work with those people to ensure that they have a good standard and quality of life going forward, however we manage to to rearrange this. But I think there are some discussions going on about how the national and how the global tourism industry have operated and how they will do so in future. So I wanted to go back to something you briefly mentioned, which was the driverless cars. And when Emily went to that aging conference, she came back and she was talking all about zombie cars, and it was around Halloween, so I was like, oh, that's like 
so funny, Emily, like zombie cars, like that's not a real thing. But then she was explaining to me exactly the concept of zombie cars and like they are real and we should be scared of them. <laughs> so can you talk about them a bit more? Yeah, sure. So, so zombie cars is, is a term that's used to describe automated vehicles that are driving around without anybody, without a person in them. Particularly, it's used to describe the idea that if we charge to park vehicles, particularly in dense urban areas where land use is, is where land is really scarce, if we charge vehicles to park, but vehicles can drive without a human driver in them, then imagine you own a car and you're going to work and you have a choice between paying really high rates to park your car for the time that you're at work or just setting your car off to drive circles around your office block. And it's an electric vehicle almost certainly, so the cost of having it travel around is relatively low. So you can, you can just program it to travel in circles around your office block until you're done at the end of the day and you get back in it and drive home. Which are you going to choose? Now, people who are basing their decisions primarily on cost might choose to just have their vehicle circulating for urban areas, for the environment, for people. That is a horrible, horrible idea. And so as we think about and plan for automated vehicles, we need to work out some, some differences in systems to ensure that that is not the decision that people make. There are a lot of things about how autonomous or automated vehicles are going to operate in urban areas that are a bit scary. I think it's important to, to be aware that we have time to make these decisions to, to ensure that this doesn't happen. We just need to actually do it. One of the other things that, that concerns me is how we're going to allow for pedestrians crossing streets. Now, this isn't so much a safety concern because I'm assuming here that by the time automated vehicles are dominant or prominent on our roads, that they will be able to cope with somebody stepping out in front of them and stopping. The problem comes more about how we navigate how often they stop and who has priority in stopping. Have you ever walked down Queen Street in Auckland? Yeah, no. it's very busy. It's very busy. There's lots of people. And you've got all these intersections with pedestrian crossings where the pedestrian crossing will go and people will be going in all different directions. They'll be crossing over, they'll be doing diagonals, they'll be all over the place. And you look at the volume of people crossing at those intersections and it's really, you know, it's, it's startling. On a New Zealand scale, it's startling. Now imagine that you've got automated vehicles that will stop as soon as somebody steps out into the street. Now, the vehicles down Queen Street aren't going to get anywhere because people are just going to walk out in front of them all the time, assuming that they're going to stop. And we might think that that's a fantastic thing because actually it gives pedestrians a whole lot of power. And assuming the vehicles do actually stop when people step out, it really changes the balance of power between vehicular traffic and foot traffic. And that might be something that we want to do, but we might also think, well, you know, throughout history, car drivers in the automotive industry have had a lot of power and they have redesigned roads and road rules collectively and intentionally to ensure that vehicle drivers retain that power. So then we look at if that were to happen, we'd be looking at ways to stop pedestrians crossing streets in between vehicles so that the vehicles aren't stopping all the time. So then 
are we looking at walled streets? Are we looking at vehicles in tunnels? What are we? How are we going to manage that change in dynamic between the pedestrians and the vehicles? History gives us some not massively positive lessons in that regard. So I think it's something that we need to consciously think about so that we, we get it, we do it better this time around. It's a good point to talk about us being conscious about this decision making too. I want to go back to how the topic of zombies cars came up because when I talk about cars being problematic in particular how much space they take up when you've only got one person driving a car a car takes up quite a large volume of space on a road or in a car park in particular if you think about how much land is taken up in an urban city just to enable parking for cars that's a huge amount of land so with electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles an argument I often hear is all cars won't need to park and so that's how zombie cars Helen and I were discussing and how it's still very problematic that cars still need that space and when they're autonomously driving around they're still taking up the same amount of space on the road and they're still creating that same amount of pollution that you just talked about as well if they're still moving. I think a really important point here is how many cars there are. Because obviously if we have fewer cars, they take up less space. And one of the, one of the arguments for driverless cars taking up less space is that when a car can drive itself, you won't need your own. Because actually, you can get in a car, you can travel to work or to wherever you're going, the car can then go off and, and do other, you know, pick other people up, you know, whatever, and it can pick you up later where you need to be and when you need to be. And if there are a lot of them, it could be fairly quick. So, you know, when we're getting ready to leave the house to go somewhere, you know, we're maybe tying our shoes, locking the door. It could be the case that you order a vehicle through an app or, or whatever system we have that replaces apps in future and that it's actually there by the time you've got out of your house and it's ready to pick you up and take you somewhere. So the convenience of having your own car completely disappears because it's just as convenient to use a shared vehicle. If that works, it could have some substantial advantages. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people now are looking into vehicle sharing systems and what it, what it takes for people to not own a car, but instead to share vehicles. If we can get there, that has some substantial benefits. But to get there, there are a range of hurdles that we need to get over, including things like the idea that a car is a status symbol. While that persists, we struggle with the idea of sharing. We also, to make sharing work effectively, we need to get to a high enough volume of vehicles that you can guarantee that one is going to be there. And we need to set pricing structures so that sharing is a, is a viable alternative for people at all income levels compared to, to driving. If we look at the very early days of electric scooter use, here in New Zealand in particular, electric scooter use took off when Lime introduced their electric scooters into some of the major centres. People got to try them for a relatively low amount of money. They got to use them. But what happened fairly quickly after that was that sales of electric scooters went up because people had tried the shared ones that you can hire and had then decided that it would be more convenient, easier, cheaper. They could guarantee that a scooter was there when they needed one if they owned it. 
So they tried the shared ones first, and then they bought stuff. And if we're going to seriously make sharing vehicle systems work, we need to get past that happening. It seems very difficult to me to shift this idea that we're very car-focused, given the current infrastructure in lots of cities, things being far away, it's difficult to get there. So how can that behavior change happen along with like infrastructure change and other changes? Like, It seems like it all needs to happen at the same time. Like, We can't just hope for a behavior change because it's still a status symbol to own a car and it's still difficult to get places that are far away and we still want to go on long holidays. I think the thing is that when you look at the problem in its entirety, it seems insurmountable. It seems like this is the only way of doing things and it seems like this is the way that things will always be. But it, that, when you look at the little parts of the problem, they're changing all the time. Society is changing all the time. The, the things that we do, the way that we do things is changing all the time. It won't always be the way it is now. What we need to do is, is focus on the small parts of the, the equation that we can change now and incrementally change those as we can. You know, there's a great quote from a guy called Philip Danton, who used to be head of Cycling England. He went to one of the European countries, I think probably the Netherlands, where cycling is very prominent, and he said to them, what do I need to do to make England as cycling-friendly as the Netherlands is? And the response he got was, start 20 years ago. And I think that, you know, that there's, there's a slightly depressing element to that in that we should have been doing more than we have been doing for quite a long time. But there is also a very positive part of that. I mean, you know, Christmas every year comes around quicker, 20 years away. It's a long time in climate terms, but it's a, not a long time in the context of human history. And the amount of things that we could change in 20 years if we started now is truly phenomenal. So what we have to do is start. And where we've already started, we need to keep going. And as we do more and more of these things, I mean, I've seen a, I've seen quite a profound shift in, in transport policymaking, I would say, in the last 10 years. If we keep doing that, actually, there are phenomenal gains to be made. So, you know, kudos to the people who are making those changes. Yeah, I think just seeing how Christchurch is evolving at the moment and how we've got the development of the 13 cycle networks and how spending has started to be prioritised for cycling and active transport. It's just those little things that you know add up over time that you're talking about. Absolutely. And I had a brilliant radio broadcast a few years ago where, and it's completely unrelated to transport, but it asked a bunch of, of kids, I don't know, maybe they were about age 10, back in, in the middle of the Cold War, what they thought the, the biggest problem facing their generation would be. And they said they thought that it was going to be the impending nuclear holocaust. And then several decades later, they asked children the same age what they thought the biggest problem facing their generation would be, and they said climate change. It is my hope, you know, obviously we have to work on it, we have to actually do it, but it's my hope that what will happen in decades to come is we'll ask children what the biggest problem facing their generation is and they'll say something different because we'll have worked out how to deal with climate change and we'll have done it. You know, we do know a lot about how we can fix these things. We just need to actually do it. So let's do it 
and let's let the children of future generations worry about the next big existential crisis, which will no doubt come. You know, humanity is great at having existential crises. We'll have another one. But let's make sure that it's something different. So this is probably going to air around the holidays. So I was curious about, like, what are your recommendations for people who want to go on holiday over Christmas or over New Year's or something and want to do their best to limit their impact on the planet? Hmm. Well, I think the first thing, I mean, at the moment, obviously, most people are going to be holidaying domestically, and that's probably a good thing. The other thing is, it's a very big social and cultural change to think about not traveling long distances for holiday. And that's probably going to be a bit further than a lot of people are willing to go at the moment. Fine, go somewhere, take your tent, take your camper van, find yourself a nice batch or a motel to stay in and stay there. Explore what there is in the area, you know, go on, on the little walks, find the babbling brooks, go to the niche shops, do what there is to do there. Rather than traveling round the country every Christmas holiday, choose somewhere to go, go there and do what there is there. Next year, choose somewhere different. What you do by not traveling around is you make some of those savings that make the planet a better place. One question that we like to ask all of our guests is what is an upside that you see from climate change? Well, I think if we change the way we travel, I mean, this is, this is an easy one. Car-based travel is fundamentally bad for people. It's bad for, for community. I mean, communities where there are big roads, people know each other less, they have less social cohesion, they have less functional communities. If we reduce the amount of car-based travel that we do to deal with climate change, we will probably make communities better. And that's got to be an awesome thing. We'll make life better for people who can't drive, for people who have, for example, vision impairments and can't drive. If we're all getting around by using public transport and walking, then the people who don't have other options are going to be in their element. I mean, it's going to be superb. I think it has some really good potential benefits. Cool. Yeah, and I like how you're also talking about decreasing the divide between the haves and the have-nots as well, when we include and have communities that are able to cater to everyone, you get a more diverse community and everybody flourishes as well. Mm. And I think the important things about, about conversations like these are that often the problems that are coming up in society are entirely predictable. There's a fabulous radio broadcast with H.G. Wells from 1930 where he talks about how horrific congestion is and how it was entirely predictable and how a lot of the problems associated with vehicle traffic were entirely predictable before vehicles arrived. And that was in 1930. And arguably, many of those issues we're still facing in exactly the same way that they were in 1930, but just more so. The thing about conversations like this, where we look seriously about at what the future might hold and how we can consciously and deliberately make decisions, is a lot of these things are avoidable. And so when we think about how we're doing things, let's just be a, a little bit more open to new ideas and think that the world could change in ways that at the moment we can't, we can't really predict. So when we see new things coming, let's look for the things that we need to avoid and the things that we need to capitalise on and see hope that we can make things better by being just a little bit more conscious about what we do. That's a really great way to wrap up. And yeah, change can be scary, but it also can bring so many positives too. Um, just because 
like things are going to change in the way that we live in the future as you talk about Helen but the way we have been living hasn't always necessarily been working for us so there's a big opportunity for us to have a society and a, a world that's more suitable for people. Absolutely. I mean, I remember when I first saw someone with a mobile phone, you know, it was the size of a briefcase and they looked like a complete idiot. And now, you know, most people have got one and, and we have them with us all the time. And my perception of that has, has changed enormously over the course of my lifetime. So while there is change that looks impossible at the moment, it is possible. And then it becomes normal. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot to be said for, for what is normal and how we do things. And we can help make things normal in many ways, we talked earlier about infrastructure. Infrastructure helps a lot with making different behaviours normal. And there are many different ways that we can normalise things. It's often a question of thinking properly, deeply hard about how we change things. And thank you, Helen, for taking time for this interview, but also for the way that you've explained things in such an easy-to-understand manner. It's been a joy to listen to you, a joy to hear the research that you're doing and I can just tell you exude positivity so thank you very much for your time. Thank you, thank you, it's been great to chat with you. I really liked talking to Helen, she was really personable to talk to and she's given us a lot to think about so I thought we'd wrap up with some key takeaways. So the first takeaway is that we can make our holidays more sustainable by traveling to fewer places or just one place and spending more time in just that one location. Another takeaway for me was how Helen reinforced the idea that EVs may help us to reduce our emissions associated with fossil fuel powered engines, but they don't reduce the other downsides of having cars on the road, like the need for concrete and asphalt for building roads and the air pollution and tyre wear that cars can create. One thing Helen talked about was that autonomous vehicles are coming soon, and they may prioritise pedestrians, but we need to make sure that our street infrastructure doesn't exclude pedestrians to shift the power back to those drivers. I really like the way that Helen ended our conversation acknowledging that the world is constantly changing and evolving and we can't always predict where it may go. We shouldn't focus on what we might lose but acknowledge that trends and cultures are constantly changing and acknowledge that those changes may bring many opportunities. We thought we would create a segment that we'll sometimes include in this podcast that we're calling Spill the Tea, where we have a discussion about something that sounds great in theory and promises an environmental benefit, but it may not be what it seems to be. In this segment, we'll pick up something that we've heard about recently and explore some of the benefits and potential hidden downsides We're always open to suggestions of what we could discuss on Spill the Tea. So send us a message if you have a great idea. So for this Spill the Tea segment, we thought we would discuss something that we've been hearing a bit about. It's a credit card that claims to be carbon neutral. The company that puts it out is American-based. The credit card has this tagline. Each and every time you buy something over $1.50 with your credit card, 
one of the partners plants a tree in your honor. So essentially, every time you're buying something, there are trees that are planted. So that sounds pretty interesting. But how does it really stack up? Does it really deserve this label of carbon neutral? Yeah, it's an interesting concept because if it's a small purchase that contributes to a daily need, then it's an unavoidable purchase and then we're getting more trees from it and it sounds like a great idea. But it also sounds like it's a bit of greenwashing for those purchases that are excessive and maybe purchases that don't necessarily need to happen. And I'm really curious about how a tree may be offsetting goods that we don't need to buy that are cluttering up our lives. Yeah, you might think to yourself, well, I don't really need a new shirt, but every time I buy something, they'll plant a tree, right? So I might as well go for it. And so it might be contributing overall to more waste. And it's sort of hard to imagine that that tree that's being planted might offset that sort of waste that you're making because it is something that is actually physical and in the world. And while the carbon costs may be somewhat offset, there are other things that you should be considering like, you know, plastic waste, which wouldn't be solved by planting a tree. Yeah, and like finite resources, the the drilling that might have to happen to get those resources. I think it's similar to what we were talking about with electric cars as well, that for those that are caring about the environment, it removes some of that environmental guilt. So therefore it may encourage more purchases or at least by removing the guilt, it removes the resistance from the purchase. And so that kind of concerns me as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think this company is trying to market themselves as something different than the usual credit card, right? Like you're not usually planting a tree. You're not usually thinking about your carbon impact necessarily. So maybe in some respects, it is a good thing for you to reflect that on the fact that your purchases have a carbon cost at all. So that's that's a good thing. But maybe it is removing that guilt that you would normally have. And so there's a there's sort of a balance there that it's unclear whether you're coming out on top environmentally. Yeah, I agree. It's really good to see more awareness of the environment and people making purchasing decisions that are good or better for the environment. But it also, I think with these kind of marketing campaigns, we need to be really looking at who's benefiting. And it might be easy to think, oh, it's an environmental campaign, so the more trees. But at the end of the day, it's, I think, more of a marketing tool for you to choose their credit card than it is benefiting the earth. Yeah, so we sort of thought on balance that the takeaway from these cards is that maybe the best way to reduce our carbon footprints and our generation of waste is to actually buy fewer things. And that when we do buy things, we want to make sure that 
one, we really need them in our lives, not just want them. And also that they're going to last more than just a couple of years. Like they're going to be something that's really essential to our lives and sort of making that a conscious thought when we're buying things that we want it to be something that is going to last. That's all we've got today. If you want to get in touch, you can send us an email at itsgettinghotinherepod at gmail.com or you can find us online at plainsfm.org and on our newly established Facebook page, It's Getting Hot In Here podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Kakite ano. Kakite.